Hello, welcome to an MCC lecture series titled Understanding Modern Liberty with Fokayan and Brian Cerberus Smith, or Wilson, I should say. <laughs> I'll never get that right. Um, <clears throat> today, we are in the third uh, talk out of four, and it is on Leo Strauss's chapter slash essay, Relativism. The essay is broken up really into three sections. The first section is where Strauss addresses Isaiah Berlin, which was the subject of our previous talk. Strauss uh, examines Berlin's attempt at defending a a sort of anti-communist liberalism. But this leads to the second part of the chapter on positivism. Uh, And positivism appears to be an attempt to hold on to maybe what Berlin cherished while escaping some of Berlin's inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. And finally, the third section of the chapter is on historicism, which is in turn uh, a rejection of some of the basic tenets of positivism that lead in the end to, I think, a more according to Strauss, more dignified outlook. Mm-hmm. So we're going to begin today's talk uh, with Brian Wilson discussing uh, the Strauss's examination of Berlin. All right. So uh, in the first paragraph, uh, Strauss does not begin the essay by giving you a dictionary definition of relativism uh, or some kind of freestanding definition um, so that he's will not be confused by blind scholastic pedantry. In order to do this, he examines the opinions of a famous contemporary, Isaiah Berlin. By beginning with common opinions in his own time, he begins Socratically. So Strauss begins by laying out Berlin's account. Um, For Berlin, the cardinal issue or fundamental political problem of our time is freedom. Berlin distinguishes two senses of freedom. Now, in our last talk, um, we spent a lot more time on these two senses of freedom, but we can still uh, give you Strauss's overview here. So there's these two senses of freedom. On one hand, we have negative freedom, which is understood as freedom from, or there ought to exist a certain minimum area of personal freedom that cannot be violated. So that's negative liberty. Positive liberty, on the other hand, is freedom to the freedom of the individual to be his own master or to participate in the social control to which he is subject. Positive liberty, in Berlin's view, has a tendency to be understood as freedom only for the true self and so is compatible with the most extreme forms of coercion. As an example, you can think about our own time. Um, The prevailing opinions might say that our true self is anti-racist. Therefore, we will take care of you until you are that way. Come with us. <laughs> and they, they lead you on and uh, you watch videos or something <clears throat> while they whip you. Uh, I don't know. But um, <laughs> anyway, so that you could imagine that's like a version of positive uh, liberty. Um, I don't think that's the kind that Berlin's worried about, but he probably wouldn't like that. Uh, at any rate, Berlin says that the private sphere of negative liberty is sacred. This claim to sacredness, as Strauss suggests, needs an absolute basis, and Berlin has some sense of this. But, as Strauss points out, 
Berlin refuses to supply the absolute basis. Instead, Berlin says that reference to any subjective will or principle will do. Just, you know, I don't know, invoke God or natural rights or utility, whatever you want. Uh, you can use any of those things, and that will sort of serve as your makeshift, you know, uh, foundation for negative liberty. As Strauss puts it, quote, liberalism, as Berlin understands it, cannot live without an absolute basis and cannot live with an absolute basis, end quote. It needs an absolute basis to secure the sacredness of negative liberty, but Berlin can't seem to stomach the idea that there's only one way or end for man, which might be that provide the basis of the uh, sacredness. Now, here is a brutal contradiction that Strauss locates in Berlin's essay. So um, late in the essay, Berlin says um, that the rules about frontiers of freedom are so deeply ingrained in the nature of man through history that they make us a normal human being. So that is to say, uh, these forces have been acting upon man for so long, they've almost become like a second nature. So you're kind of like a freak if you don't believe in negative liberty. And yet, Berlin also says, um, closer to the beginning of the essay, that the domination of the above ideal, which is to say of negative liberty, has been the exception to the rule, even recently in the West. So Berlin is saying like, yeah, this is pretty new. That's why we should admire it. And then on the other hand, like that is to say, it's kind of an accomplishment for Western man. Um, but then on the other hand, he's like, but this is kind of almost ancient. It's been with us always. So Strauss points this out. That's a pretty sloppy reasoning on Berlin's part. And um, can I jump in? And- oh, by all means. <clears throat> yeah, because I think, I think what's important is that Berlin would prefer not to say that it's old or that it's normal because that's not his experience of things. But he's pushed into needing to say, it's almost like needing to say this is part of our conscience, mm, right? That's like how he, that, he has to make it normal to make it, a, to, to found or to form the, the absolute basis for his frontier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Um, good. So uh, Berlin, in the spirit of his time, finds himself fighting for relatively valid ideals. Uh, Berlin quotes Schumpeter as saying, quote, to realize the relative validity of one's convictions and yet stand for them unflinchingly is what distinguishes a civilized man from a barbarian, end quote. Uh, So we're led to another striking contradiction. Won't the absolute insight into the relative validity of all our primary ends likewise turn out to be only relatively valid? And yet Berlin is likely to cling to the judgment that the distinction between civilization and barbarism is a final claim about the truth and not subject to revision. Um, So it may be, oh, as Strauss puts it, it might be the case that as thinking beings, we do end up having to take a stand, but that doesn't make our position sound. Otherwise, a liberal hack or thug could be better than Plato just because they stand by their conviction. So as a kind of like summary remark on Berlin, I guess we could say that Strauss sort of positions him or shows him floundering in a halfway house in between relativism and absolutism. So in that way, he's bound to uh, find himself mired in contradiction insofar as he can't cleave to one of these positions, which might yield a greater level of consistency. Is there anything 
um, Fokin, that you would want to add about the sort of first 14 paragraphs that are devoted to articulating Berlin's position? I'll do so as a sort of jumping off point in a moment, but I wanted to ask if you had an idea or an opinion as to who he meant when he meant liberal hack. Hmm. Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah. I don't know. My guess is Karl Popper. But, <laughs> uh, like the letters to Vogelin on that are pretty brutal. Right. <clears throat> I read something recently by him that made me think that as well, but I can't recall it right. Uh, I can't recall it right now. But um, yeah, so the two uh, contradictions uh, that Brian just pointed out, they are in a sense, he's pushed to, to these problems. Basically, Berlin can be said to be an egalitarian first and a natural rights person second. Now, what, what causes these problems, what makes positive freedom attractive is the preponderance of a certain type of person in society for whom negative freedom is not enough. And then the pity that men like Berlin understandably have for that kind of man. So uh, in a society where there say there are not massive destitute urban populations, uh, the distinction between negative freedom and positive freedom doesn't appear so stark. Mm -hmm. And it can be said that negative freedom serves as the true basis for human genius and human flourishing. Uh, but when the when you have millions of destitute people in urban centers who don't have property, don't have any real hope of acquiring property except through maybe redistribution of wealth, and even then that's not real wealth as we all know how that turns out. When you when you have this kind of um, person, then people start to say, okay, they are quote unquote free to acquire property, but they're not really free. They don't have that good positive freedom and um so this is i think the 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 proliferation of this kind of person leads to a sort of crisis in the belief uh in natural rights or negative freedom as uh, berlin calls it mm -hmm. so um when so because therefore I mean, if your main concern is, say, the dignity of this new destitute type that is swamping every city and now every town in the United States and elsewhere, <laughs> um, if your concern is the dignity of those without work and without much hope, then you, you know... You can make that your central concern and not worry so much as Berlin does about the foundation of freedom. Right. Yeah, I think um, Strauss says, uh, I didn't mention this, but he sort of says that Berlin's essay or whatever would be a decent like political propaganda or political program. Like that you could, like political thought maybe can admit of more contradictions um, 
in a way than like philosophical thought can, but Strauss wants to take Berlin to task at the theoretical level. So he's like, well, whatever, you know, it's like a practical mode of thinking about this. Uh, I guess it's okay. But um, Strauss is more concerned, I guess, here with the theoretical question at hand. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where, uh, as you point out, Berlin gets in trouble. And so when Strauss finds these contradictions in Berlin, he, and this is in, we're going to be putting notes up uh, on the website. So it's broken down by paragraphs and you can easily in your book write out the paragraph numbers beside the paragraphs. But in the 14th paragraph, that's when Strauss really closes his examination of Berlin up, but it ends with a objection. And that objection is, so what if Berlin contradicts himself? He contradicts himself just because he's deeply concerned with holding on to this sort of Western idea of freedom. Now, I might be putting a little bit in there, but the point is is that uh, there's a imagined obje- Strauss imagines an objector, and the objection basically is what we can do is just say there is no basis for any ideology, whether it's negative freedom, positive freedom, freedom or slavery or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that way, you can't catch us out. Right, you can't you can't figure out some sort of you know we're not going to as Berlin did claim that there there is a foundation for a type of freedom, right? And then these the positivists by saying that values can't be adjudicated between, but you can actually understand facts. They hold on to, or at least try to hold on to, some minimal level of rationality as opposed to Berlin. So they think that they are more consistent than he is. Right, so that takes us to the. I mean, that takes us to, I guess, paragraph fifteen, uh, where Strauss kind of, in my reading of this, really positivism. I think it really gets two paragraphs, fifteen and sixteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fifteen, positivism is given this definition that it's it's essentially mm, Strauss calls it the scientific explanation of how you get from point A to point B, the scientific explanation of means, um, but uh, a denial that there can be a scientific explanation of ends. Mm -hmm. Uh, He has, I pulled a quote from one of his lectures on what positivism is, and I'd like to read that as well, just to help give us some background. Yeah. He says in his natural right and history course of 1962, he he says, Uh, By positivism, I understand the view according to which the only form of genuine knowledge is scientific knowledge, and scientific knowledge issues only in factual statements and contradistinction to value statements. So if a factual statement would be something like human beings act this way and do these things, a value statement could be, and here's what I think of that. I mean, here's how I feel about it, or here's what I think they ought to do it that way, or I think they ought not do it that way. Um, And so the hope, the the most dignified hope of, I think, you know, the social sciences and positivism as the overriding ideology of the social sciences is this idea that political things could have have the demonstrable quality that things like biology and physics and chemistry do. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, okay, so... Positivism in an attempt to 
focus only on facts and just say all values are relative, they nevertheless carry on possessing, they, they continue to have Berlin's concern for the dignity of all men. So um, no matter how many sort of refutations are given of the positivist's distinction between facts and values, and there are many refutations. Strauss gives one here and then, I, and then another. I'll go over them both in a, in a moment. But no matter how many uh, refutations are given of this distinction, it does not seem to shake, or it did not in the 60s and 70s, seem to shake the faith of the positivist social scientists. So Strauss you know, talks in, on several occasions about how you, in the university – in the 50s and 60s, you could talk to professors of political science who said all values are relative, and they would say things like, no, really, there's no way of saying that Nazism is worse than uh, liberal democracy. I just happen to like liberal democracy and dislike Nazism. And so I'm a scientist who looks to figure out the, the means to bring about liberal democracy, but I'm in no way a better human being or a more choice-worthy specimen, same thing, uh, than uh, you know a Nazi doctor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, what, what's the problem with the fact-value distinction? In this in this chapter, Strauss points out the Marxist criticism of the fact-value distinction, and that is when the social scientist goes about collecting his facts, he necessarily imports his value. I mean, you, the facts that you choose represent the values that you bring, say, to the table, right? Mm-hmm. What we today know as narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's no, there's, there's no escaping this. I mean, uh, you can take a step back and say this in more, on more, in more general terms. Um, since the human being is the instrument of observation of the facts and things, you know, you, human beings are necessarily mortal, um, everything is a matter of choice, and choice is informed by your preferences or your values. And so all examination of values has to be done by the instrument of the human being who is himself an evaluating animal, an esteeming animal. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the sort of Marxist, the Marxist criticism that uh, Strauss talks about by this Marxist theorist, Lukash. Uh, that's the sort of refutation given there. The, the, there's a... Another refutation that he gives in natural right and history, and there are others, you know, um, there's just so many ways of pointing out that distinguishing between facts and values collapses when it comes to certain facts, which we cannot help but evaluate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but uh, in natural right and history, he gives a sort of inner, I would say, an inner contra- refutation. And that is, if you want to make a distinction between facts and values, you must know what a fact is and what a value is. Defining what a fact and what a value is would necessarily be talking about facts. So if you define what a value is, you're talking about a fact. To define what a value is, you would distinguish, have to distinguish between desire and choice. And then you're off to the races insofar as uh, if a value is going to be anything other than desire, you have to ask why would you why would you choose to go against your desires or why would you have to, where mm-hmm. do more 
powerful desires come from, things like this. Um, that might not be satisfying. Uh, but in general, I think that's the the path he takes more clearly in natural history. So <clears throat> let me read this um, quote about the stubbornness of uh, positivism and its connection, where the source of the stubbornness. So this is a more of a, you know, a psychological view. Strauss says, and this is from 1962 as well, positivism is a theoretically indefensible position. It represents an entrenched position which has become a feat. Why is it so powerful nevertheless? Why do so many people, I think the large majority of social scientists in particular, cling to it? It seems to me that we have to look for it in the first place in extra theoretical motivations. The traditional the tradition of the connection between modern science and modern libertarian movement, this famous emancipation movement leading toward a perfectly secular and perfectly egalitarian society. And I think we can find the bitterness and the heated character of the discussion can be traced to the fact that it is not merely an academic issue which is involved. Um, so there's a sense in which the, the, the general run of positivists are not concerned with the dignity of reason and of science. Uh, that is, they're not concerned with elevating the social sciences to the level of demonstrability, but they're much more concerned with denying the existence of a hierarchy of ends. Mm -hmm. uh, and this this is why Strauss discusses at length in paragraph 17 through 23 Marxism in the section on positivism. He, he discusses Marxism actually much more than he discusses positivism in the section as, that is putatively about positivism. Mm -hmm. um, so Marxism is just another form of historicism. Okay. Uh, it had it. The criticism that Marx and the Marxists level against the fact-value distinction is similar to the distinction that later historicists, like the English historicists and then the German historicists, will also level against um, the fact-value distinction. And that is, like I pointed out earlier, this idea that man is the instrument which evaluates and... Uh, it is evidently empirical that man's estimations of the facts change over time, change from period to period, from time to time, from regime to regime, and that the real study of the whole is a study not of facts and values as distinguished from each other, but a study of the system, or what in Marxism will become a study of the system. To understand any given fact, of history, you have to understand the men who are playing the role. This is under, this is all reasonable. Uh, you have to understand the men who are playing the role, and therefore you have to understand the historical time period in which those men are living and acting and thinking, because they are. Uh, it is presupposed uh, that they are shaped by that uh, time in history, and that's. I mean, it's not very controversial to say that men are shaped by their time. What's controversial is to say that they are shaped and limited ultimately by their time. Right. Yeah, but sometimes you meet people 
vaguely acquainted with Strauss-Zionism, or even some Strauss-Zionists were kind of so allergic to historicism that the second that you try to mention historical context, it's like, whoa, 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 you know, they're like out of the cave already, you know, or something like that. But, but it makes sense to say that probably the vast majority of all human beings that have ever lived had been creatures of their time. Like it, it's like a, it's a rare accomplishment uh, to sort of be totally liberated from that. If it doesn't seem like very many people have done that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I know, and I know what you're talking about. Like, <clears throat> I mean, the problem with historicism or like, especially the appeal to like uh, historical context is that it allows for lazy thinkers to come up with stupid reasons why authors do things rather than try to give real reasons. Right. I remember I had this teacher who basically everything that was confusing about Dante, they just said, well, this is, this is because of the troubadour tradition that he says this. It might not make sense to us, but you know, whatever. Right. right. Like yeah, so, yeah. There's definitely bad temptations uh, that go with that kind of thing. No doubt. And that, yeah. So it's like, right to be, I guess maybe I've spent so much of my life guarding against historicizing that I'm now like slightly more, I don't know, like willing to at least take it somewhat seriously, even if at bottom, theoretically, the highest types of human beings ought to be read as if they are free from that. Um, like, so I think that's true, but yeah, anyway, that's an aside maybe. No, I think um, the dignity of historicism is uh, actually severely downplayed by Strauss on purpose and that he probably understands historicism if it's thought of in the right way to be perfectly philosophic. Mm -hmm. um, that's my hunch, but that's probably a longer discussion. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so we're at the point where like uh, in the essay Strauss, I mean, Strauss attacks Marxism on two fronts, theoretical and practical the practical attack is the experience of the USSR, and he says, uh, practically speaking, Marxism as an idea may give the proletariat the oomph they need to attack the capitalists, uh, but we have seen that the oomph needed to attack the capitalists does not does not necessarily mean, and usually ends, uh, usually ends in the proletariat being just enslaved to a, a rigid military bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. so they don't improve their position on account of Marxism, typically, or not more than typically, universally. Um, <laughs> which, of course, which of course is a refutation on Marxist terms because for Marxism, everything is history. Um, mm -hmm. That's I. I mean, that's how Strauss puts it in some places. Um, mm -hmm. Here, I think he says that Marxism fails because. As his, well, it's kind of the same thing. As history changes, new ideas will arise that are not necessarily Marxist. So if Marxist tries to take a non-relativist view um, and say Marxism is the end-all, it runs into uh, the problems that Berlin ran into and it was trying to be avoided. Okay. Um, but you had more to say about uh, historicism's, you, you know, taking over the argument of that positivism failed to raise. Well, I mean, are you talking about turning to the last four paragraphs? Yeah. Could I ask you one question about paragraph 23? Sure. Paragraph 23. Um, like, I, I guess this is, maybe I asked this because this is kind of like the conclusion of uh, his like refutation or attack on Marxism. So at the bottom of 23, he quotes, okay, so yeah, 
he ends up saying like, okay, so what Marxism is really trying to do is attack the division of labor, but it's not, the division of labor goes deeper than you think that it does. And we're not even talking about like giving birth, but we're talking about the act of sex itself, that that is a division of labor. So if you want to move from the realm of necessity to this promised land of the realm of freedom within the thought of Marx, um, you have to have these homunculi test tube babies who create other homunculi test tube babies and so on and so forth. And so that sounds pretty gross. Uh, but then he quotes Machiavelli's discourses on Livy. And he says, as has been written by some moral philosophers, man's hands and tongue, so I guess speech and action, um, two most noble instruments for ennobling him, would not have done their work perfectly, nor would they have carried the works of men to the height to which they are seen to have been carried, if they had not been driven on by necessity, end quote. And then Strauss says, the jump from the realm of necessity into the realm of freedom will be the inglorious death of the very possibility of human excellence. So that strikes me as totally true, I suppose, but I just wondered if it wasn't consistent with his, I don't know, like theoretical. I mean, do you think that he'd already sort of theoretically disposed of Marxism and could now help himself to just like a, look, isn't this disgusting? Yes, it is disgusting. Uh, and then like he, then he moves on. He's like done with Marxism like there. I was just curious what you thought of like that, that move. Cause that seemed to be like the moment of his disposing of Marxism. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I called. I, I, I think I understand where you're headed, what you're driving at, but I don't know if I know the answer. So like um, the disgusting end result of Marxism, the, what gets called in our circles, the autonomous herd, right? Right. Um, we're all human choice sort of a uh, real human choice because real options evaporates because there's no more rule. Um, that's sort of discussed at the practical result, even if Marxism is perfectly successful. Um, I think that is different from his theoretical because it's, I mean, his theoretical uh, rejection of Marxism has to do with um, if you, if all, if history is relative, right, then you have no access to say that your view of history is not relative unless you adopt a sort of uh, view that you are in a privileged point in history, an absolute moment in history or a special time in history, um, which Marxism does and doesn't do because it claims, it seems to believe that mm, like history is almost, sometimes it looks like history is just beginning. Like history hasn't begun until the revolution really starts. Right. Uh, but at other points that uh, there will be for, for in uh, unending progress uh, in Marxism be, for the very reason that uh, everything would have to be changed. Even, you know, like um, every... Um, division of labor, every scintilla of honor and shame, all these things have to go away. Mm -hmm. So it's like constant revolution or constant progress and history never ends, which both of these, I, both of these like make you think that, I mean, for, cause for Hegel, Hegel, someone can save Hegel and say, um, Hegel wasn't wrong about the end of history. What Hegel meant was the pinnacle of history has been reached in the Prussian state. If you want to refute Hegel, you can do it on different grounds, but you can't refute Hegel by saying, 
history kept going, right? Right. But that seems to be a refutation of Marxism in a way that it wasn't a refutation of Hegel. But that's, that's no, that, I think that's what I would think. I don't know. No, that, that makes sense. And, and now that I think about it more, I mean, kind of what you were getting at before of like, so if you apply Marxist uh, like dialectical or material historicism to itself, it means that you could say like, oh yeah, well, Marxism's like a half truth, you know, once we get to the bureaucratic military state or something. And now there's going to be like a new truth that emerges and it keeps going like on and on that maybe, and, and sort of like what you had proposed before that uh, if the classless state like doesn't emerge, like if history is the test and this thing doesn't really ever work out, um, then that constitutes the refutation. So I, I guess I'm more persuaded now that I think it through that Strauss is like that he can help himself to this kind of example at the end, since he's sort of disposed of Marxism because, you know, earlier in the essay, when he was talking about positivism at first, he said, well, you know what? The positivist can't distinguish between a man who has no kin, you know, no family, and he just makes money in a a very efficient way. And is just selfish versus the man who's like the benefactor of all mankind. Um, You can't distinguish between those two. And it's kind of a funny example because Strauss is very polite, you know, I think elsewhere, you know, he'll you know talk about prostitutes and things like that. But um, but he's very polite here. But but he seemed to think like, well, just because our common sense prefers the nobleman, generally speaking, uh, doesn't permit us to dispose of positivism. And so I was worried for a second that he was disposing of Marxism with this example that I quite like. But I think, as I think about your explanation, he had kind of theoretically dealt with it prior to helping himself to. Isn't this disgusting? Okay. Yeah. That's helpful. Um, and just let me wrap it up then just real quick. I, oh, yeah. So, I mean, the section that I'm covering, you know, it has uh, this first two paragraphs on positivism that are really the main sections on positivism. Paragraph 15 and 16, then 17 through 23 is on Marxism, and then 24 through 28. Eight. I think I have that right. Mm-hmm. Yes, twenty-eight uh, is also where he returns. He returns to what he calls the external ruler positivism. So, um, I did not, in what I talked about earlier, really talk about much of what he covers in this section, and I'm probably not going to. Uh, I will say <laughs> that <laughs> he does something similar here with positivism that he does with Marxism and he does a sort of um, a practical and a theoretical refutation. I've already gone over some of the theoretical refutations. I wanted to point out his, uh, some of his practical uh, things. And he says, look, you have um, positivism uh, ultimately justifies science by its usefulness, right? (laughs) So science, science isn't about making men, um, their true selves in the Berlin terms or happy or good. It's about making them more powerful. Mm-hmm. And he says this, that this was something choice worthy or even good has been drawn into question by uh, the atom bomb. Uh, it looks as if man has acquired through science technology, just power that uh, it's not really, you know, it's bad enough that stupid people are in charge of politics from age to age. 
but to give them these weapons is really not a good thing for humanity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And part of this is all of this links the, the ubiquitous, the, the ubiquity of like harmful technology, the new kind of urban destitute man that I talked about earlier, these kinds of failures of modern society led positivist social scientists to refuse to declare that civilization was more desirable than tribal life. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and so these are practical, these are practical evidences for the failure of positivism. Not they're not theoretical refutations. The theoretical refutation is done more by exis- by what he calls existentialism, which appears to be a form of historicism, which you're going to talk about now. Right. Um, I, and to sort of set up that, I think, Fokin, you were sort of bringing out part of the problem of positivism is that it can't really answer the question, why science? At best, it says it's useful, but as you point out, uh, it obviously is also not just useful. And um, I don't know. I mean, I know that <laughs> like every Straussian of a certain kind thinks that everything is about the Socratic term, <laughs> but, um, but it seems like what part of this is almost like part of like the question Socrates was dealing with when he was young, when he was just like, sort of like a pre-Socratic, so to speak, interested in science, that science can't justify itself by itself. And Strauss seems to indicate here with positivism that the positivistic science, uh, it doesn't deal with the human things, uh, or sorry, he puts it as they don't give due weight to the question of the human context out of which science arises and within which it exists. And, um, yeah, so I guess they don't provide a justification for why this is the best way of life. And they don't fully realize that science itself maybe can't answer this question, but rather than Strauss now trying to answer that question, he turns to existentialism partially because it provides maybe a much sterner challenge than positivism does to answering the question of the best or right way of life. Um, so he says that the human context of science is taken up by the most powerful opponent of the West, existentialism. It has a hard center and a flabby periphery. Uh, Heidegger seems to be the core and Nietzsche is the root of this. Um, he says that Nietzsche faced the problem of relativism in its full extent and he pointed the way towards which it might be overcome. Uh, Nietzsche encountered relativism in the form of historicism, or decayed Hegelianism. Historicism, put simply, is the claim that thought necessarily depends on time, and that thought cannot meaningfully transcend the stamp of one's time. So this is different, as we had said before, from Hegel proper, who reconciled philosophy in the sort of old sense of the acquisition of wisdom with or pursuit of wisdom with, although in this case it's acquisition, with historicism by saying that there is an absolute moment in history when the theoretical and practical problems are solved. So, and I only, I bring up Hegel proper to say that, um, as Strauss brings out, the decayed Hegelianism that Nietzsche encountered preserved Hegel's optimism, but in a contradictory manner. It tried to insist that history more or less is finished on one hand, while we could expect infinite progress, which is to say, history is unfinishable on the other. So this is the um, relativism that Nietzsche initially encounters. Um, 
So then Strauss sort of starts to outline Nietzsche's approach to these things in light of his coming into contact um, with these ideas. And you can, you can see this in Nietzsche's untimely meditation on history, um, on the uses and disadvantages of history for life, if you want to uh, approach Nietzsche's thought on your own on this question. But uh, as Strauss puts it, our thought, or Strauss puts it as Nietzsche thinks, our thought and the thought of the past depend on inescapable premises, which are condemned to perish. And on Strauss's account, Nietzsche proposes that culture is only possible when men are fully dedicated to principles of thought and action, which do not and cannot be questioned, which limit their horizon and enable them to have a character and a style. So uh, you could think of Nietzsche's criticism of Socrates from the birth of tragedy when Socrates asks young aristocratic men to justify themselves before reason. This could be a horizon-destroying event. Um, Or you could think of what Strauss mentioned earlier in the essay, uh, bringing science to traditional communities, that is, helping them, quote, develop, destroys their moral horizon. Science destroys or can potentially destroy uh, moral horizons. Um, So Strauss says as well that history becomes uh, a spectacle um, and that for the superficial this is exciting. And for the serious, it's enervating. I guess uh, maybe a modern analog that you could put on this would be to say that um, historical consciousness of this kind makes the superficial highly interested in the current thing. Like, whoa, I have to pay attention to the New York Times. History is happening right now. We have to pay attention to this. It's very important. Um, And then the more serious people, they have a hard time taking authoritative traditions seriously that their awareness of so many times and places and peoples and cultures makes them think like, I'm just wearing a costume. Like, how can I really take God seriously in the way that my ancestors did? Um, they lived in a moral horizon that's totally unlike mine. So um, they feel like they're LARPing or something like that. Um, okay. So from there, um, Nietzsche thinks that the only way out seems to be turning one's back on history and indulging in a life-giving delusion rather uh, than facing the deadly truth. But Nietzsche insists that this isn't possible for men of intellectual probity or what Nietzsche might call honesty in uh, Beyond Good and Evil. Okay, so Strauss moves to say that history destroys the objectivity of principles of action. So the principles have no objective validity and no objective support. And we can see from this then perhaps they were just human creations. And whereas in the past, such creations were made unconsciously, um, now they must be made consciously in full awareness of the fact that they have no foundation in full awareness of the fact that they are freely chosen creations uh, by human beings. Uh, I guess as Strauss says, this would be the revaluation of all values. Okay. So, I'll turn to the final paragraph and then see if uh, Fokin has things to add that we're missing from this account of the last section. Um, So Strauss now tries to bring out what could be uh, contradictions within Nietzsche's thought, although Strauss says he states this with all necessary vagueness, um, which is to say this can't possibly be the final word on Nietzsche. But, um, 
Okay, so Strauss says that Nietzsche tries to turn the deadly truth of relativism into a generative, life-giving truth. Um, so here is the way in which he presents the contradiction. So he says that human creativity is a special form of the will to power. So here's the two sides of the argument. A, is the will to power uh, Nietzsche's subjective creative project to be superseded by other such projects in the future? Or B, is the will to power the final truth? Is this his attempt to find a sufficient theoretical basis for a trans-historical truth? Um, we see in some sense a deeper version of Berlin's initial problem, where he found himself in between relativism and absolutism. Here, Strauss suggests that Nietzsche found himself in between the supremacy of history on one hand and the supremacy of nature on the other. In this way, Strauss intimates that we must turn to Heidegger to see the fullest account of a kind of radical historicism or relativism that challenges the possibility of any kind of rationality. That's, that's a lot of uh, stuff. Um, what, what, yeah. what do you think? What would you add or push back on or... Um, what do you think? Um, for one, I can talk like all day about, you know, uh, how interesting it is as a political project to turn what looks like a dismal outlook into something life-giving. This looks to me like a sort of new enlightenment. So you had with the old, that Nietzsche's starting a new, it's a new kind of enlightenment. Uh, the old enlightenment would be what we found with Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, these kinds of people. And that would be, we are going to subject nature to uh, reason. We're going to approach nature with our reason. And this is, this is perfectly okay uh, because it's God's creation. And we are going to learn about uh, this world that has been made for man. Mm -hmm. enlightenment Nietzsche's enlightenment is this world has not been made for man <laughs> uh, at all um, but this become I I, I, I I could talk what I was saying earlier is I could talk about this all day because uh, I like the idea of I mean I'm just attracted to the idea maybe <laughs> I you know I don't have maybe a good reason for it but um, the, it's a it seems compelling that if things are not made for man then you could say uh all sorts of options open up um, mm -hmm. and we could be more creative, I think would be a, the Nietzschean uh, way of thinking of saying it. But um, <laughs> uh, the other, th but the other thing I, I thought worth mentioning or bringing up is there's some, and I don't understand it. And I would, if you have a suggestion or if any of our listeners uh, could fill in uh, my could fill in the blank. Uh, anyway, so in paragraph 29, in paragraph 29, he talks about the namelessness of existentialism. Uh, while related to these two illustrious names, Nietzsche and Heidegger, existentialism, existentialism is as nameless as positivism or idealism. I think that there's a thread behind this essay dealing with, you know, philosophies which are the result this is a sort of Nietzschean way of looking at it philosophies which are openly and explicitly the result of a personality of a man's psychology 
starts off with Berlin uh, and <laughs> philosophies that are, um, I don't want to say isms because there's things like Hegelianism and Straussianism, but philosophies which are ideologies, so to speak. Like this is, uh, you know, this is not, I'm not talking about the thought of this or that figure. I'm talking about positivism or I'm not talking about Darwinism. I'm talking about the science, the science of evolution. Or like um, liberalism. Yeah. I'm not talking about Locke. I'm talking about liberalism. Um, so but I think that behind what's going on here is uh, – so, f for example, I think Strauss, attack, you know, he deals with Berlin and then he deals with positivism as an ism. Mm -hmm. But, you know, since he does, he attacks something nameless, right? Or he maybe not attacks but tries to explain something that's nameless. And I wonder to what extent we can explain these nameless things or how consistent they can be. Or even what the point of pointing this out is. Like if anyone could tell me why Strauss points this out, what it means, I'd be very uh, grateful. Why it's as nameless as positivism or idealism? Yeah, I mean, I read that as clearly being pejorative. Mm -hmm. Like it's not good that existentialism is as nameless as these two things. I don't know why. I have some hunches, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is like a partial thought, but I mean, since he says that it has a kind of flabby periphery, but a hard core, um, I don't know, it seems like when most people I talk to are random people, like when existentialism comes up, people like Sartre or Camus end up coming up. And uh, I don't know, I, as far as I can tell, Strauss doesn't spend any time dealing with those kinds of guys. Um, and that he often doesn't name Heidegger when he's talking about it. I mean, he does mention Heidegger's name in this essay. Um, once, I guess, right? Just the one time in that paragraph 29. He definitely, he definitely names him in 29. I'm not sure if he does. Not I think he like intimates, you know, him. I mean, maybe I'm thinking now about like the restatement to on tyranny when like, I don't know, it's like the closing paragraph or something like that, that he says to Kojib, you know, Kojab, you're a serious guy because, you know, unlike somebody else who he doesn't name, who spends all day thinking about being rather than justice, you know, he never actually gets at the question of being. Um, so there's something about, he's right, that doesn't fully explain, I think, what you're getting at. But there's something about namelessness, existentialism, and Heidegger that seem that there's something going on with that. Yeah. I think you're right. I just don't, I'm, I don't know. I, sometimes you, you know, sometimes you get stuck on a sentence. You think maybe there's profound meaning behind it, uh, but maybe there's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but who knows? Maybe one of our listeners can give a really good explanation. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you have any, anything else to add? Uh, I'll just add this. I had not read Strauss in some time and just so he's so good. What a joy. <laughs> yes, I completely agree. Okay. Well, uh, this has been fun. And uh, next time we'll be talking about David Sidorsky's um, another concept of liberty or third concept of liberty. So uh, I look forward to talking with you about that. Likewise. All right. Uh, Cerberus and Fokian out.